Is it possible for the dead to remain here on earth in the hope of exposing a crime or to briefly return to correct an injustice? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and return to tell the tale. These are their stories. exists in the church records of the Scottish town of Fetter Cairn an account of how the Reverend Dr. Rule, who was then the Chancellor of the University of Edinburgh, stopped for the night in Fetter Cairn while en route to Aberdeen. As the local inn was full at the time, the innkeeper offered Dr. Rule and his servants shelter in an empty house not far from the inn. I can light you a nice fire, provide candles and blankets, and anything else you may require, offered the innkeeper. But I must warn you that the house is haunted. Well, that was enough to send his servants off in search of safer accommodations they might find amongst the locals. Dr. Rule, however, was made of sterner stuff and had no qualms about spending the night alone in the house. That night, he undressed, crawled into bed, blew out the candle, and promptly fell asleep. All was fine until a short time later he awakened and observed the figure of a man approaching the bed. The phantom reached out toward Dr. Rule and removed the candle from a bedside table. The phantom made his way to the fireplace, where he stooped down to light the candle in the still glowing embers of the fire. He then turned toward the door, beckoning Dr. Rule to follow. Now, spending a night in a haunted house was one thing, but following a ghost God knows where was something else entirely, and Dr. Rule refused to budge from his bed. The ghost, however, was not to be ignored, and taking up a poker, he thrust it into the fire until it glowed red-hot. He then laid the poker down on the floor, pointing it directly at the Reverend Doctor. At this point, Dr. Rule realized he had no choice but to do whatever the wraith required, and reluctantly he followed the ghost out of the bedroom and down a staircase. When they reached the foot of the stairs, the ghost set the candle down on the floor and melted away into nothingness. Now a lesser man might have fled in terror, but Dr. Rule was fascinated and determined to puzzle out the meaning of all that had transpired. Murder, he reasoned, must be at the root of it. And once he'd come to that conclusion, he calmly fell back to sleep. The next day, he asked the innkeeper if he was aware of any unsolved murders in the vicinity. No, replied his host. Still, Dr. Rule was convinced that he was on the right track, 
and he decided to tarry a while in fetter cairn and arranged that he should preach at the town church that coming sunday his celebrity ensured a large turnout and he delivered a sermon on the subject of conscience a sermon so eloquent and so compelling that following the service an old man came up to him tears flowing from his eyes when i was a young man he confessed i helped build a house here in town this being the very house in which dr rule had encountered the ghost i got into a quarrel with a fellow worker and we thought it was an accident i swear it was only an accident but the other man was killed i was scared i didn't know what to do so god help me i dug a hole at the foot of the stairs and i buried him there dr rule saw to it that the area at the foot of the stairs was dug up and a skeleton was unearthed the bones were given a proper church burial and the ghost was never seen again Some ghosts seem compelled to appear only once or twice to prevent the loss of an item of importance or to correct an injustice. Jacopo Alighieri, the son of the poet Dante Alighieri, wrote that when his father died, thirteen cantos of his divine comedy were missing from his manuscripts and despite an exhaustive search, no one had the slightest idea where they might be. Then one night he dreamed that his father appeared to him and told him of the location of a drawer in which he would find the lost manuscripts. The next morning, Jacopo found a drawer in exactly the place his father had said it would be, and inside were the missing manuscripts of all thirteen cantos. A more recent case was reported by William Oliver Stevens in his book Unbidden Guests, in which he recounts an incident told to him by a former United States government official who, while naturally sensitive to psychic influences, had become especially interested in paranormal phenomena while a student of the psychologist and philosopher William James at Harvard. This official, whom Stevens calls H., in order to preserve his anonymity, was working at his typewriter one Sunday when the apparition of a man, a man he had never seen before, appeared before him in his Boston apartment. The apparition spoke, identifying himself as the father of a man whom H. had only met four times. The ghost said he had come to H. to ask that he transmit a message to his son a message necessary to rectify an injustice he had visited upon his second wife. When the father had announced that he intended to marry his stenographer, both his son and his daughter had vociferously argued against the marriage, accusing his wife of only being after their father's money. 
As his children's animosity continued after the wedding, his new wife attempted to end their hostility by signing an agreement to not accept more than $10,000 from her husband's estate should he predecease her. As the estate turned out to be much larger than had been supposed, and the ghost felt that $10,000 would not be enough to meet his wife's needs, he desired that H. convince his children to provide a more appropriate settlement for their stepmother. When H. passed the ghost's message on to the son, the request was met with laughter. Nothing further, he declared, would be given to the widow. The ghost, however, angry with his son, was not to be denied, and appeared again to H. in his apartment the following Sunday morning and identified a bank in Chicago, saying, Tell him this time that in the bank in Chicago I have a safe deposit box with a sum of money in it of which he knows nothing. Tell him to go and get it. H. reluctantly imparted the new message to the son, and again the son responded with derision. Now the ghost was extremely angry and appeared to H. saying, I'll make him go to Chicago. There's something my children don't know and will not be able to ignore. Tell my son they are the offspring of my second wife. Before I married their mother, I had been secretly married to a woman I divorced for infidelity. The papers for that are in my strongbox. He gave H. the number of his Chicago safe deposit box, as well as informing him that his son would find inside $10,000 in government bonds for which he gave H. the serial numbers. When H. delivered this message, the son again treated it with derision, but thought he had best ask his father's brother and business associate if he knew of the secret marriage. Although the brother denied any knowledge of such a marriage, the son was now intrigued enough to contact the Chicago bank and was stunned to learn that his father did indeed have a safe deposit box there. Upon traveling to Chicago and opening the strong box, he found not only $10,000 in government bonds, with serial numbers being those given by the ghost, but papers documenting the secret marriage. Still, the son and his sister had doubts and required one last test. H. was asked to examine a number of family photographs and from them identified their father. H. was baffled. No one in any of the photographs matched exactly the face of the apparition who had sent him out on this strange journey. In frustration, he pointed to the photograph of a man with a beard and said, If it weren't for that beard, I would say that was the man I saw. Now I believe, exclaimed the son. Father always wore a beard but he shaved it off a week or two before he died. The ghost son and daughter agreed to provide a more substantial financial settlement for their stepmother, and their father's ghost was never seen again. A final, highly dramatic case 
comes from the proceedings of the Venerable Society for Psychical Research, an account sent to them by a gentleman of impeccable credentials, all of the details of which were backed up by an accompanying statement from the man's wife. I am the owner of a very old mechanical business in Glasgow, the gentleman reported, with for twenty years past a branch in London where I've resided for that period, and in both of which places my professional reputation is of the highest order. Some thirty-five years ago I took into my employment a tender, delicate-looking boy, Robert Mackenzie, who, after some three or four years' service, suddenly left, as I found out afterwards, through the selfish advice of older hands who practiced this frightening away systematically to keep wages from being lowered, a common device, I believe, among workmen in limited trades. Passing the gate of the great workhouse in Parliamentary Road a few years afterward, my eye was caught by a youth of some eighteen years of age ravenously devouring a piece of dry bread on the public street and bearing all the appearance of being in a chronic state of starvation. Fancying I knew his features, I asked if his name were not Mackenzie. He at once became much excited, addressed me by name, and informed me that he had had no employment, that his father and mother, who formerly supported him, were now both inmates of the poorhouse to which he had no claim for admission, being young and without any bodily disqualification for work, and that he was literally homeless and starving. The matron, he informed me, gave him daily a piece of dry bread, but durst not, under the rules, give him regular maintenance. In an agony of grief, he deplored his ever leaving me under evil advice, and on my unexpectedly offering to take him back, he burst into a transport of thanks such as I cannot describe. Suffice it to say that he resumed his work, and that under the circumstances I did everything in my power to facilitate his progress. All this was mere matter of course, but the distinction between it and the common relations of master and servant was this, that on every occasion of my entering the workshop he never, so far as possible, took his eyes from following my movements. Let me look towards him at any moment. There was the pale, sympathetic face with the large and wistful eyes literally yearning towards me as Smikes did towards Nicholas Nickleby. I seemed to be the polar star of his existence, and this intensity of gratitude never appeared to lessen in degree through lapse of time. Beyond this, he never ventured to express his feelings, his manhood, as it were, his individuality and self-assertion seemed to have been crushed out of him by privations. I was apparently his sole thought and consideration, saving the more common concerns of daily life. In 1862, I settled in London, and have never been in Glasgow since. 
Robert McKinsey and my workmen generally gradually lost their individuality in my recollection. About ten to twelve years ago, my employees had their annual soiree and ball. This was always held year after year on a Friday evening. Mackenzie, ever shy and distant as usual, refused to mingle in the festivities and begged of my foreman to be permitted to serve at the buffet. All went off well, and the Saturday was held as a succeeding day of festival. All this, however, I only learned after what I am now about to relate. On the Tuesday morning following, immediately before 8 a.m., in my house on Campton Hill, I had the following manifestation. I cannot call it a dream, but let me use the common phraseology. I dreamt, but with no vagueness as in common dreams, no blurring of outline or rapid passages from one thing disconnectedly to another, that I was seated at a desk and engaged in a business conversation with an unknown gentleman who stood on my right hand. Towards me, in front, advanced Robert Mackenzie, and feeling annoyed, I addressed him with some asperity, asking him if he did not see that I was engaged. He retired a short distance with exceeding reluctance, turned again to approach me, as if most desirous for an immediate colloquy, when I spoke to him still more sharply as to his want of manners. On this, the person with whom I was conversing took his leave, and Mackenzie once more came forward. On looking at Mackenzie, I was struck by the peculiar appearance of his countenance. It was of an indescribable bluish-pale color, and on his forehead appeared spots which looked like blots of sweat. For this I could not account. What is all this, Robert? I asked somewhat angrily. Did you not see I was engaged? Yes, sir, he replied, but I must speak with you at once. What about, I said, what is it that can be so important? That I am accused of doing a thing I did not do, and that I want you to know it, and to tell you so, and that you are to forgive me for what I am blamed for, because I am innocent. I did not do the thing they said I did. I said, what? Getting the same answer. I then naturally asked, but how can I forgive you if you do not tell me what you are accused of? I can never forget the emphatic manner of his answer in the Scottish dialect. You'll soon can. This question and the answer were repeated at least twice. I am certain the answer was repeated thrice, in the most fervent tone. On that I awoke, and was in that state of surprise and bewilderment which such a remarkable dream might induce, and was wondering what it all meant, when my wife burst into the bedroom much excited, and holding an open letter in her hand, exclaimed, 
Oh, James, here's a terrible end to the workman's ball. Robert Mackenzie has committed suicide. With now a full conviction of the meaning of the vision, I at once quietly and firmly said, No, he has not committed suicide. How can you possibly know that? Because he has just been here to tell me. By the following post, my manager informed me that he was wrong in writing me of suicide. On that Saturday night, Mackenzie, on going home, had lifted a small black bottle containing aquafortis, used for staining the wood of bird cages, believing this to be whiskey, and pouring out a wine-glass full, had drunk it off at a gulp, dying on the Sunday in great agony. Here, then, was the solution of his being innocent of what he was accused of, suicide, seeing that he had inadvertently drunk aquafortis, a deadly poison. Still pondering upon the particular colour of his countenance, it struck me to consult some authorities on the symptoms of poisoning by aquafortis, and in Mr. J. H. Walsh's Domestic Medicine and Surgery, page 172, I found these words under symptoms of poisoning by sulfuric acid. The skin covered with a cold sweat, countenance livid, and expressive of dreadful suffering. Aquafortis produces the same effect as sulfuric, the only difference being that the external stains, if any, are yellow instead of brown. This refers to indication of sulfuric acid generally outside of the mouth in the shape of brown spots. Having no desire to accommodate my facts to this scientific description, I give the quotations freely, only at the same time stating that previously to my reading the passage in Mr. Walsh's book, I had not the slightest knowledge of these symptoms, and I consider that they agree fairly and sufficiently with what I saw, a livid face covered with a remarkable sweat, and having spots, particularly on the forehead, which in my dream I thought great blots of perspiration. It seems not a little striking that I had no previous knowledge of these symptoms and yet should take note of them. I have little remark to make beyond this, that in speaking of this manner to me very affecting and solemn, I have been quite disgusted by skeptics treating it as a hallucination in so far that my dream must have been on the Wednesday morning, being that after the receipt of my manager's letter informing me of the supposed suicide. This explanation is too absurd to require a serious answer. My manager first heard of the death on the Monday, wrote me on that day as above, and on the Tuesday wrote again explaining the true facts. The dream was on the Tuesday morning 
immediately before the 8 a.m. post-delivery. Hence the thrice emphatic, ye'll soon ken. I attribute the whole to Mackenzie's yearning gratitude for being rescued from a deplorable state of starvation and his earnest desire to stand well in my opinion. I have colored nothing and leave my readers to draw their own conclusions. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.